here's, here's the thing. We're only looking at four verses today. Um, we've been walking through the book of Philippians uh, and just kind of doing this over the summer. And, and remember, the book of Philippians starts out as kind of like this warm, relatively personal letter from the Apostle Paul, who's imprisoned in Rome, to the church in Philippi. He had been there with them 10 years earlier, kind of planted the church by preaching the gospel, and he loves them. Remember, he, I just, he couldn't help but share, I, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus, he told them. He loves the church there. He told them, here's how I pray for you, with thanksgiving and with joy, and with this expectation that God who started a good work in you is God who's going to complete a good work in you. So that was the first 11 verses of this letter. And then last week, we looked at verses 12 to 26, where we saw Paul making a choice to rejoice even when the circumstances were undesirable, because the gospel was advancing. And he knew that for him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wanted to honor Jesus in his body, whether by life or by death, right? That's what we looked at last week. In today's passage... He's going to write to them about how he expects them to live in the meantime. He he desires to be able to leave Rome someday and come back to Philippi. That's how he ended it. I want to come and be with you again. But he's not altogether sure if that's actually going to happen, right? And so he kind of gives them some instructions on how to live in the meantime. Here's the question. As people whose lives have been turned upside down by the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior, how are they to live? That's a good question for them. It's a good question for us. As people whose lives have been turned upside down by the good news that Jesus is both Lord and Savior, how is that supposed to affect the way that we live? Okay, That's what we see in verses 27 to 30. So if you're able to, would you stand? Our custom is that we stand as we read the Word of God. I'm going to pray first, because I've got nothing good apart from what God has for us. So let, let's pray, and then we'll read. Father, that's true. I, I, people don't want to hear what Jeremy thinks about stuff. I'm not altogether sure usually what I think about stuff. I'm still working on that. But God, I thank you that you have allowed us to have your Word, that you have you have preserved through the centuries and you have, you have inspired people like the Apostle Paul to write down your very word that we might know you and we might know your son and that we might know how to live in light of what he has done. So God, I pray that you would help us with that now. I pray that you'd help me to speak clearly that we might understand your word and apply your word. Uh, and so God, help me to, to do that uh, clearly uh, and passionately and help us to be engaged our minds might be wandering right now but god we want to be tuned in uh there's nothing probably more important for us to do right now than to hear your word so help us to hear it clearly help us to be obedient in jesus name amen so god's word from philippians chapter 1 starting in verse 27 says this only Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
for. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. You can be seated. So among the many things that are in your bulletin, there is a sermon notes page for you if that's helpful for you uh, to follow along with as you take notes. The outline of the message is there. Paul begins this section by saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he's going to be talking to them about their manner of life or the way that they live. And and the particular way he wants them to live is a life worthy of something else, and that is the gospel of Christ. The thing that is assumed in this passage is that they know what the gospel of Christ is, right? I want to make sure that we who are gathered here today know what the gospel of Christ is. Gospel just means good news, okay? So there's good news about Jesus, and the good news shifts and shapes the way that we live, right? And that's what Paul is saying. He wants that good news. Here's what the good news is. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God, who remaining fully God became also fully human and lived a perfectly obedient and righteous life, the one that we failed to live, and suffered and died in our place on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead with victory over sin and death, who ascended into heaven where he intercedes for the believers and where he prom- from where he promises to return, to judge the unbelievers and to finally save those who trust in him and to rule and reign forever that he might dwell with us. That's the good news. And so we hear that good news because we know what we actually deserve and we hear what he's done and we hear the good news. We're like, praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we, if, if you're like me, your shoulders slump a little bit when we're told, live in a manner worthy of that. Like, oh, really? I, I understand all the depth of what Christ has done for me and I'm supposed to live up to that? I'm supposed to live in a manner worthy of that? Well, thankfully, Paul lays out to the, for the Philippian church what he means by that in this case. Okay? So in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in light of what Jesus has done for us, here's how our lives ought to be shaped together as a church. That's what he's saying to the church in Philippi. So only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. We'll get to that part in a second, but you get what he's saying there. Like, I'm not there with you, right? He's imprisoned in Rome. Whether he gets to come and see them or not, or he's just absent and unable to come, he wants to hear, this is what was happening while I was away, right? Those of you that, like me, are oldest children, feel like this weight of responsibility because you recall, and some of you, you are, your oldest kids in your family right now, and sometimes your mom and dad leave, and they tell you what they expect to find when they come back. You know what I'm saying? Right? That's kind of what Paul is doing here. Like, I'm, I'm not there. I used to be there, been gone for 10 years. When I come and see you, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, here's at least the report I want to hear. Here's what I want to see. What does he want to see? A gospel-worthy life. What does a gospel-worthy life look like? Well, I think three main points. One, a gospel-worthy life looks like Standing firm in unity 
on gospel mission. So, standing firm in one spirit. Here's what it says. That I may hear of you that you are, this is still verse 27, standing firm. Okay, so standing firm means like not blown around, like not wavering, not falling back, not giving up, but like a standing firm. Like I'm getting planted here. In unity. Notice that he's going to stress unity here. He says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Now keep in mind, the church in Philippi is made up of lots of different kinds of people. Remember how we talked about in week one, how the church in Philippi got started? It's when Paul went to Philippi and he preached the gospel first to a wealthy Asian businesswoman named Lydia, and she and her whole household come to faith in Jesus. So that's kind of first converts. That's followed by a formerly demon-possessed slave girl. That's followed by a Philippian jailer. So it's a pretty diverse group of people. Do you think that a wealthy Asian businesswoman and a formerly demon-possessed slave girl see everything the same in the world? (laughs) Probably not. Do you think there might have been some challenges in functioning together as members of one church together? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why Paul repeatedly throughout this letter, we're going to see it again next week, encourages them to be united. Okay? One spirit, one mind. Right? So unity, standing firm in unity, but it's not like, so it's not like standing firm in unity so that we can all get around a campfire and sing kumbaya. It's not like some like hippie commune kind of like unity. Right? This is, this is more military-like. That's the kind of unity he's talking about here. We know that because of what it says next. It says this. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, So they're standing firm in unity, locking arms, locking minds, locking with one another in unity. And they're doing that for the purpose of accomplishing something. They're striving side by side or contending side by side or wrestling side by side. That's, that's the picture here, okay? Not like they're going to get dirty together. This is more, like I said, military terminology. Some of you have served in the military where you were put in a unit with, with people from all sorts of different parts of our country with all sorts of different backgrounds and suddenly you have to learn to function together as one in order to accomplish whatever mission is given to you. That's what he's talking about here. The church, made up of all sorts of different kinds of people, brought together under the blood of the Lamb, are now put together and they're supposed to, with unity, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. They're in a culture where the gospel is not going to be highlighted uh, as something that is good. But they know it's good, and so they need to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's point number one. Quick point of application for us. I love how, how, how easy the application here is for us. Because are we a diverse church like the church there in Philippi? We are, right? We have old people in this church. Some are like, hey, that, that's mean. No, you're old. Some of you are old, right? And some of us are young, right? That's good. It's good to have a church with old people and young people and all sorts of people in the middle. 
We've got people in this church who love politics and people who can't stand it, right? That's fine. People who like new music and people who love old music, that's fine. People who love country music and people who love good music, (laughs) right? It's fine. We can disagree on that. You can be wrong and I can be right and that's fine, right? People who love sports and people who prefer art, married people and single people, People who are battling opposite-sex sexual temptation and people who are battling same-sex sexual temptation. People who send their kids to public school and people who homeschool. Introverts, extroverts, people who are new to faith in Jesus, people who follow Jesus for decades, people who are sure and set in their faith and people who are struggling with doubts and questions, all sorts of different people. And guess what? God's called us together. And so we can hear the same call Listen, in the face of, of cultural winds that might feel like they're against us, stand firm in unity, one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. God has given us a calling as a church, and we're going to stand together in unity. That we're different, and we're not going to let our differences divide us. Like, we're going to love each other. Unity looks like, you know, if, we get, like, if you're living together with people, you're going to have conflict. And when we have conflict, we go talk to those people, right? We're going, to be, we're going to refuse to do what everybody else does and talk about people. Like, I got a problem with this person, and I'm going to talk to this person about it. How about if we have a problem with this person, we talk to that person about it, right? That's not what the rest of the world does, but that's what it looks like to live together in unity, right? To not be divided by differences, but to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, that we recognize that God has given us different callings and different passions and different gifts, but the same spirit and the same mission, that we might make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded because he promises to be with us even to the very end of the age. This is what draws us together. So living a life worthy of of the gospel of Christ looks like standing firm in unity on gospel mission. That's number one. Number two, not fearing opponents. We get that from verse 28. That's just what he says. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now here's what we don't know. In some of the letters that Paul writes to different churches, we have a really clear understanding of who the opponents are. Most of the time, the church is facing uh, some, some sort of opponent of some sort. They're against the church, they're against the gospel, they're against Jesus, and they're an opponent. And most of the time, it's pretty clear who those opponents are and what it is they're teaching. In the book of Philippians, it's not super clear, right? But it's people that are opposed to not just the work of the church, but opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that because of what we read in the rest of verse 28. The rest of verse 28 says this. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You could see, couldn't you, how it would be easy to be a Christian in Philippi and live in fear. I mean, after all, soon after many of them hear the gospel from Paul, They see Paul taken to jail and tortured there, 
in their own city. That's how it got started. And now Paul, this 10 years later or so, he's writing them from Rome and he's in prison. And still, the, the Christians there in Philippi are just a small minority. And the whole culture has a totally different worldview than most of them, right? You can see how it'd be easy to live in fear. But Paul tells them, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Why aren't they to be frightened? I think it's because they know how this ends, right? Look at the rest of verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. In the end, God's plan is for those who continue to be opposed to Jesus and his gospel, the end for them will be eternal destruction in hell. While those who have been saved by God's grace will be in his presence forever. Right? So he's clear about that. Here's why we're not frightened by our opponents. Because we know that those who continue to remain opposed to Jesus will suffer destruction and those of us who have been saved by Jesus will experience his presence forever. And that's a gift from God. I think that's helpful for us too. Let's think about our culture. So, I I mean, we know a little bit uh, from history about Philippian culture. We know probably a lot more about American culture in the year 2021. Historically, here's what most of us are used to, okay? Historically, we're not like the Philippian Christians because the Philippian Christians were always like this fringe minority. But most of us have grown up in a time and place in the world in which that's not us. That there has been some form of like Christian morality and Christian values that have been kind of underlaying everything. And that has resulted in, for most of our lives, most of us living here have enjoyed rights and privileges and power that most Christians throughout the rest of the world, throughout the rest of church history, have never known. True? Right? We have enjoyed rights and privileges and powers that most Christians throughout most of the world and throughout most of church history have never known. But today it does feel that we are in the midst of a cultural and moral shift. As though the tide is turning against us. It feels that way, doesn't it? That the worldview, the kind of prevailing worldview, the winds of our culture around us have shifted uh, even more so to be against what we value and hold to be true. There's a number of examples of this. I mean, one of them would be we're in the middle of what is called Pride Month at a time when there are strong cultural pressures to celebrate various forms of sins identified by letters like LGBTQ+. Plus Plus isn't a letter, but we're noticing that newly invented like sexual liberties seem more important to many than religious liberty. We're recognizing that, right? So we feel kind of, man, the the, the tide seems to be turning. The winds seem to be shifting. We need God to grant us wisdom. How do we live through this? Yeah, not, not just how do we use our votes and our voices to be salt and light, but how to not fight for our rights in a way that fails to show love for our neighbors and 
that shows that we're falling into fear. I think it was important because we're becoming a little more like the Philippian church, where we're becoming more and more like a minority. And Paul had to tell them, listen, guys, don't be frightened by your opponent. The end for those who continue to reject Jesus is destruction, and for us is salvation. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. How do we do that? I think it is by keeping that end in mind. The end is not one political party winning or one nation winning, right? That's not the end goal that we have in mind. The end goal that we have in mind is that people from every tribe, language, and nation will be gathered together around the throne of the Lamb who was slain, crying out worthy because we know that Jesus is Lord and Savior, right? That's the end that we look forward to. And that's what causes us, that's what helps us not to be frightened in anything by our opponents. So, Paul is calling the Philippian church to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Number one, by standing firm in unity on gospel mission. Number two, by not fearing opponents. And then finally, by expecting to suffer for Christ's sake. By expecting to suffer for Christ's sake. Look at verse 29. Look at how it starts. It says this, For it has been granted to you. It has been granted to you, or gifted, or given to you. It's Father's Day, and the first time I got to see my kids this morning was when I was here, but I'm expecting that I might be getting a gift from them uh, later on today because it's Father's Day, I think, right? Am I? Uh, but like, uh, they, they, they love me, and one way to express your love for someone is to give them a gift. And a gift is more meaningful when it comes from people who love me who know what might be meaningful to me. Like, they know what I like. They know what I need. And so they give me a gift that seems to match with what I like and what I need. Listen, we have a God who knows us incredibly well, better than we even know ourselves. And he gives us many gifts, doesn't he? He knows what we need. And so here is this word kind of used for, for giving of a gift. It says, he has granted to us. Okay, good news. We're going to get to here. We're going to get to here. We've got opponents and all that stuff. But we've got a father who knows us and loves us and he's giving us a gift. What's the gift that he's giving us? Let's look. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ. Oh, that's something about the gift. So the gift that he's given me is not just going to be for my good. It's for the sake of Christ. So he's going to give me a gift for my good, but also for the sake of Christ. But let's keep going. Here, what's the gift? What's the gift? That you should not only believe in him. Oh, that's part of a gift, right? We've got to acknowledge our salvation's a gift. Why do I believe in Jesus? Is it because I'm, all, I'm just smarter than all the people that don't? No, it's because even faith is a gift from him. I'm saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. It's a gift given to me freely that I don't deserve. So, so I've received that gift. He's granted me that I should believe in him, but also, look, oh, here, here's the part where he's like, what, that's a gift? But also suffer for his sake. Well, that's not the gift I wanted, right? God grants us the gift that we might believe in him for Christ's sake, but also that we might suffer for Christ's sake. That, that's a, you know, a lot of times when we talk about suffering, we, we talk about that as like, that's something that God like reluctantly allows. 
where I think this verse and some others in Scripture kind of point out that, that, that suffering is, is the means by which God gives to his people that which we could not receive in any other way. Right? Suffering is often a gift that God grants as a gift to accomplish his greater purposes. More on that in just a moment. Let's look at verse 30. <laughs> Paul ends this way. He says, Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Remember that 10 years ago when he was with them, they saw Paul being thrown into jail and tortured. And now he's writing as a prisoner in Rome. Paul said, like, you saw that, and now you hear that I'm, I'm here I am again, a prisoner again. But Paul sees suffering for the sake of Christ as a gift from God. God has granted to me to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul's not just saying these like idle words to them. He's saying them to them as somebody who's been beaten, somebody who's been tortured, somebody who is currently a prisoner. And he's saying to them, God has granted to you that you might suffer for the sake of Christ. I think it's important for us to hear what Paul said. So here, here's the deal, church. Yes, in the end, we win, don't we? And we look forward to that. And it's good for us to look forward to that and to keep our eyes on that. But for now, we should expect to suffer. We, we prefer it, don't we? When God makes hard things easier and he makes things better. When the narrow path seems to open up just a little bit and when the steep, rocky way kind of smooths out. And it's okay, I think, for us to pray that God would do that. And he can do that. But sometimes, well, all the time, God knows better than we do what we actually need. And we're not going to learn more by him making everything easier and the path straighter all the time. Instead, he intends that we learn things sometimes through suffering. So we know how it ends. But man, we like it when stuff goes well. We like rights and privileges and power. We've kind of had that for a long time and we've started to feel maybe entitled a little bit to it. But what if God's gift to us is not only that we should believe in Jesus, but also that we should suffer for his sake? Let me ask you this question. What if God intends to mold us and get the attention of the lost world around us, not by giving us more rights and privileges and power, but by giving us the gift of suffering for Christ's sake. I should have put that on the screen, but I didn't. Let me say it again. What if God intends to mold us and get the attention of the lost world around us, not by restoring for us rights and privileges and powers that we once had, but instead by giving us the gift of suffering for Christ's sake in a way that shows that we treasure Jesus above everything else. Let goods and kindreds go, right? This mortal life also. Like the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. What, what, what if that was what God is doing in us? In our Pathways class, which uh, we're going to start uh, a new Sunday morning one and a Wednesday evening one. I'll be announcing more about that next week. That's going to start in July. But we've been meeting on Tuesday morning. And in that class, we turn to Matthew chapter 16 this week. In Matthew chapter 16, do you remember, do you remember this account? Sometimes we kind of like divide up passages like this story and then remember this story. And we forget that like these all happen in a row. 
Do you remember how Jesus came to his disciples and he asked them this? Who do people say that I am? And they were like, well, some people say this, some people say that. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And remember how Peter gets the right answer for once? A lot of times Peter gets the wrong answer, but Peter gets the right answer. Remember what he says? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And remember how Jesus responds? This must have felt so good for Peter, who often got rebuked by Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. Like you got it right. Gets a pat on the back from Jesus. But do you remember what happens right after that? Right after that in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples what it means to be the Christ. So he was right. He is the Christ. And remember he tells them what it means to be the Christ? He says, I will suffer and they will kill me. And you remember what Peter says then? No, no, no. Far be it from you, Lord. Right? This shouldn't happen that way. And remember what Jesus says to Peter? He doesn't pat him on the back anymore, does he? He says, get you behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. That's a quick turnaround. Why the quick turnaround? Because Peter was right that Jesus was the Christ. But Peter wanted a Christ without the cross. He couldn't imagine that the Christ came to, be, to suffer at the hands of men and to be killed by men. He couldn't imagine that. So he says, far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus, knowing that it's not possible to be the Christ without the cross, says, get you behind me, Satan. And then do you remember what Jesus says right after that? Again, we chop all these up, but it, right after that, Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Just as being the Christ required the cross, so being a Christian requires us to pick up the cross. Peter wanted Jesus, a Christ, without the cross, and we would prefer to be Christians without a cross. <laughs> All this denying myself and picking up the cross, suffering for the sake of his name, I'd rather not. That's how most of us look at it. But what if we more and more trusted that God has a purpose for suffering and that we might expect and accept suffering for Christ's sake? I just came across a quote this week from a Nazi concentration camp survivor, Corey Ten Boom. Many of you have read many things from her. I have too, and I don't ever remember seeing this quote before, but the quote is this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineers. It's powerful, isn't it? Right? When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineers. Listen, if you're somebody who's relatively new to your walk with Jesus... If somebody told you, like, he's the one who just kind of smooths things out, sometimes he does. And when he does, we give him thanks, and we even pray that he might. But that's, that's not the whole of it. Maybe you weren't told that you are to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. 
Maybe you weren't told that, you know what, this train that you got on, the destination is beautiful, but there's some dark tunnels to go through on the way. Are you going to sit still and trust the engineer, or are you going to say like, eh, (laughs) I can't believe I paid money for this, right? Throw away your ticket and jump off. You'd be making a deadly mistake by doing so. So I don't know what kind of dark tunnels you're going through. I don't know what kind of suffering you're experiencing right now. But I would encourage you, stay on the train. Sit still. Trust the engineer. Church, let's be a people who live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Standing firm in unity together as we work together on gospel mission. Not fearing our opponents in anything, but expecting suffering for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would be help us <laughs> to be people who clearly hear the gospel of Christ. And as we receive the, the gift of salvation from you, the gift of salvation by believing in Jesus, help us also to receive the gift of suffering for the sake of Christ. Help us to trust the engineer as we go through dark tunnels. Help us not to fear our opponents. We know that in some ways the tide seems to be turning against us, but remind us often of how this ends and help us to stand firm together in unity, contending for the faith of the gospel. Help us, God, help us to know and to believe and to live like we really do believe that Christ is enough. That He alone is the one who can satisfy us. We know that we can't do this alone. We know that we need each other. And we know that we certainly can't do this without You. So we just pray and ask for Your help. For Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. Amen.